Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Kristen Marchese. Marchese, I'm going to try that one more time. Here with Kristen Marchese. Uh, it's April 28th, 2021. We're at Abbott Claim Winery in Carlton. Kristen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, first question, biggest question, why wine? Well, that's like the heaviest question, I guess. Um, I think, you know, I grew up in wine. This is, what I, this is what I knew, although I never thought I would actually be in wine. And what I've come to understand in, you know, when I reluctantly got into wine in 2006 and now here I am, is that it's an incredibly dynamic business. I mean, there's very few things that you take from the ground, agricultural, and then have to take it all the way through production, marketing, sales, Mm -hmm. finance. So there's, it covers all of the bases. And, um, and I think also just the community and its attention to sustainability and, um, and while I think certain things in the wine industry are quite archaic, there's also people who are really pushing the boundaries and, and there's opportunity for that. And I think that is something I, I really, I love. You mentioned kind of growing up in it. Tell us about the, the, your, your early, early wine, early vineyard. Sure, yeah, so I was born, literally born on and raised in um, a winery in New Jersey. It's still there, it's called Alba Vineyard. Um, well, I guess it wasn't a winery when I was born. It, they planted it two years after I was born. But um, so it was, it was an old dairy farm that my dad um, took and um, turned into a winery and we were about 90 minutes from New York. And so at the time in the late 70s, this was a very agrarian community. So um, it was great. We were 90 minutes from New York, but we were around, surrounded by dairy farms and uh, corn and tomatoes, et cetera. And so basically we lived and died off, um, off tourism from New York and um, Bucks County and those more wealthy suburbs. Mm-hmm. And I grew up probably like many people here, getting off the bus, helping bottle, working in the tasting room, giving tours when I was a little kid. and pruning in the summer and um, it was just the family business, you know, and, and again, it was very direct consumer driven. We did have some distribution, but New Jersey wine is not like renowned or so there's not a lot of distribution. Um, although I think he really did a good job, but um, for given the, the challenges of farming there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, it was just, it was just our lifestyle is what, it was what we did. And, um, you know, I grew up running through the vineyards and on my friend's four-wheelers, but we had to be careful because of the wires, so you didn't want to get caught in the neck. You know, it's just, it was just part of our, my life. And, um, and, and my dad actually had that winery until he purchased Montanar in 2006. So that was, um, and it's, it was, uh, his partner bought it out and the, the sons that were working, that were little when my dad sold it are now adults and running this with their dad. So it's really cool to see, um, that sort of second, third generation mm-hmm. be part of that and having them grown up on the same property that I did and getting to do different things. And, um, but yeah, I mean, I was, I was in it. I was in the production side and the, the, whole, the whole thing. And, um, and so, which is, I think, one of the reasons why I thought I never wanted to do it again. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but certainly the, the industry out here and in general is a little bit more sophisticated than it was. 
You mentioned growing up in it, not wanting to not wanting to be a part of it necessarily. Yeah. We've heard that as kind of a familiar refrain for a lot of people who grew up in it. Um, tell me about your memories of it, and and, and about your um, as you started to realize there were other there were other ways, there were other things to do. What what did you want to do instead? Oh well, at first I wanted to be a theater major. I was a theater major, and I thought that I would really love not so much acting, um, but more of like the behind the scenes. Like I really thought um, just set set design and um, lighting and more of those like structural things were really interesting. Um, and then I cooked professionally, and I thought for a hot second that I would want to do that, but I got over that pretty quickly. Um, but then I found myself going back to you know landscaping, and so I when I finished college, I had two jobs. I worked at a, at a cook at a restaurant at nights, and then in the mornings or during the day, I um, there's this place in Northeast Portland, which was a historic home, and it was um, it was on a conditional permitting thing, so um, so I don't think it's still there as it was, but um, because it was residential. But regardless, it was this beautifully landscaped place, and so I ended up I started out just doing all of their landscaping and not necessarily, you know, obviously it wasn't mowing the lawn, but do it was mm -hmm. amazing and mm -hmm. and then ended up running that business. And so um, and they, we did a lot of events and we were like the early um, kind of um, uh, supper club place actually that um, and this is early 2000s. And so I really loved those that dynamics, right? Working with chefs, but also working with the land. And so um, that, you know, I, I think I thought I would get into landscaping and agriculture, or not necessarily agriculture, but landscaping, because I was, that was a format and I was really comfortable in. I really loved working with plants, um, but I was good at running things. So, um, so my, my focus kind of shifted, um, and uh, then I ended up working at Andina and running, starting their special events program, right, um, when they were really getting up and running, and then my dad asked me to come work for him, and. Mm -hmm. I said no for about three months because I really love my dad, and I was like, "We we want to spend Christmas together, you know. This is this is going to be a bad decision." And he finally just kind of broke me down. And I remember what really did it. It was um, we were I'd gone out to dinner with him, and it was like 10 o'clock at night, and I got a call from my GM and asking me something about whatever they're closing up for the night. And I got off the phone, and my dad looked at me, and he said the greatest lie he's ever said, Kristen, there are no emergencies in the wine business. And I thought, right, I see this, this is, this, and I was, I fell for it. And I was like, you're right, it's just, you know, it's, I knew it wasn't, you know, a fairy tale, but I, but again, <laughs> it was not that simple. So then I, um, you know, I started to work with my dad and that was a, that was a complicated scenario because I was, you know, he bought an existing winery with his ex existing team, and then he brings his 26-year-old daughter in to run the marketing. And um, and so you have to learn to, you know, I had to earn my respect, and um, and that was pretty hard actually. And um, to and I had to do it systematically. Every single person I came in contact with, I had to I had to earn their respect. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they just sort of thought I was this princess. And um, mm -hmm. but. Uh, yeah. So anyway, that that was that was the path. But mm -hmm. I think there was a lot of different things that I focus on. But all of those connect within the wine industry. If you're talking about gardening, culinary, um, and of course running business. Mm -hmm. So we're gonna come back to Montnor in a second. But sure. I'm curious about your path a little bit. Before that, you mentioned um, uh, education. You mentioned being in Portland. So tell yeah. me about how you got to the West Coast and kind of your educational your educational process. Yeah. So I um, I 
uh, I went to boarding school in Philadelphia, and so when I went to college, um, uh, which was also a roundabout thing, um, I went to Boston University, and I was in a dorm with a bunch of 18-year-olds, and I kind of was like, oh, I've done this before. This is not my scene. Like, <laughs> I've lived away from home for a long time. And I, and I also just, uh, I went to a Quaker boarding school, which was a great school, but it, but we had so much autonomy and, you know, part of Quakerism, we didn't call our teacher Mr. So-and-so, we called them their first names. And it was, you know, you, there was a lot of um, self-regulation. Uh, and so there was such a, I just didn't really like the kind of, the feeling that I was just a number and that I was a kid and, and I felt like I had more, I, I wasn't any more mature, but yeah, I thought so. So um, I was talking to my sister and she had gone to Reed College in, um, gosh, 1992. And she was living in Portland and she's much smarter than I. And she said to me, maybe you should look at the school in Washington, it was, it was Evergreen. And she said, I think it's good for you because it's hands-on, you, like you'll just do the stuff instead of having to sit and read about it because I was just much more action-oriented. So I thought, I don't, I didn't even go. I was like, sure, yeah, I'll, let's just transfer there. So I transferred there, which <laughs> this tells you a lot about my dedication to education. Um, and I moved to Olympia and I was there for about a, gosh, eight months and I realized, you know, these aren't my people. And um, I moved to LA with my friend that I'm about to go see and did an independent study there. I have no idea how I got away with that and worked in restaurants and had a great time. And then, um, and I was there for the morning of September 11th. And um, actually my dad happened to be in Santa Monica for work, which was bizarre. And so I you know, went and saw him and I realized like, what am I doing here? This isn't, this isn't my culture. This, these, aren't, these aren't people that I, I it's just not a life I wanna live. And so I just decided, okay, I'm gonna go up to Portland and I'm gonna stay with my sister and figure out what I'm going to do with my life. And so, you know, I did. And then she kicked me out like three months later or something. She was very, I love my sister we're quite close. And she was, she was right to do it. Cause I didn't, I didn't have any direction. I didn't really know what I wanted, but I had enrolled in Portland state. Cause I, I felt like I just needed to have some kind of anchor and grounding. Um, and I stayed, I mean, I just stayed and, uh, life here is, amazing. I mean, there's parts of me that miss the East Coast. You know, you can give the finger to people on the highway when they are in your way. You don't have to wave. You know, there's very, there's very directness, which I miss. But, um, but I, uh, I just, I loved it. So I finished at Portland State and, um, and a path of least resistance did the theater degree because I knew I wanted a degree, but I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do with my life. And anyway, here I am 20 years later. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting path, for sure. <laughs> it's not linear. <laughs> <laughs> um, you you, you <clears throat> developed this strength in, in business and running businesses. Tell me about that, how that kind of came to be and about the work, especially like the culinary work you were doing at the time. Yeah, um, I don't really know, honestly, how that came to be. I think part of it is just like my cultural modeling. So my dad ran a winery and then when I was in fifth grade, he did that on the weekends and started to work for a distributor and eventually became their like VP of brand development or something. And it's now a pretty large distributor. It's what is now um, Allied Beverage, which mm. is pretty big mm -hmm. on the East Coast. And my mom was a midwife and she went from being, you know, a lay midwife who did home births to being the first midwife to legally be able to deliver in hospitals and within this big, large area. Wow. And so I had these two parents that were really ambitious and juggling a lot and 
you know, prioritized our education. We went to grade schools. And so I think there was always, you know, there was always some structure that that was there. And it was always very driven towards achievement and work and career. And um, so I think I, in some ways, was just like naturally around it. But even when I was little, when we would go to, maybe I remember being 12 and we would go to, the, um, New Jersey had a lot of festivals. Like you'd go to a wine festival, all 30 wine growers would be there. There was like a, cat, a goat milking contest and there was like all the stuff, right? Um, this is the 80s. And so at the end of the day, my dad would give me the, the money and I would, you know, I would work and sell the wine and do all the stuff and he'd give me the money to count and, and, and whether or not I did that right, or I have no idea, but I, but I think they were just giving me these responsibilities that were very, you know, and I, and I was reliable. Um, so I think I just had certain abilities to do that. And then, um, yeah, I, I think actually for me, it's almost like a, an area of insecurity because I don't have any formal training in it, but I, but you, but learning on the job is actually, you know, in some ways better. And so, um, I think at Montanor, I ended up doing more business management just to balance out what my dad did. I mean, certainly he's great at that, but he also was really comfortable and, and loves viticulture and winemaking. And, and I think, so I think what we ended up doing was just finding where we both fit working together. And so that was something that kind of became part of what I did. And uh, I half left there because I wanted to make sure that I could do it on my own. You know, I didn't need him and um, I don't. But, um, which is good, <laughs> but, uh, and then obviously coming here, which is a completely different structure um, and, and being able to create a completely, like create a completely different wine business than what I walked into mm -hmm. here has, you know, helped reinforce a lot of skills and I've learned a lot and, um, you know, you can never stop learning. Mm -hmm. But I, I think in some ways I was just kind of predisposed to it. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Andina earlier as one of the projects you worked on. Tell me about the, the work there and kind of the other other kind of similar work as you were helping these restaurants get their get get their kind of marketing and events going. Yeah, I mean that was so. This was in gosh, when was it? Two thousand and four, two thousand and five. They just had this like big um, food and wine spread, and um, and they won restaurant of the year from the Oregonian, which at the time was like a really big deal. Not that it's not now, but then it was a different. You know. Um, press was a different thing back then and so I you know I was they had a tiny little private dining program and without a lot of business and they were the people who the Platts are just a wonderful family and had a really ambitious model and the labor associated with the food there at the time I haven't eaten there in a while so I don't really know was really high so they we they needed to figure out how to get more bodies through the door hmm. and so I don't actually know how I knew what to do, but you know, essentially, I just spent months cold calling people, bringing in event planners, you know, just trying to network within the city, just um, getting people through the doors, and and we it was really pretty cool. We grew from one room, you know, that I had to book of 16 seats to having three different rooms that we had to book and renting out the spaces above, and um, you know, one of my last events was literally a buyout of the entire building and. Um, and so I felt like I really left them in a, in a good place with a lot of business and return business. And, but that was, you know, that was just, that was just hard work. It was just calling people, you know, there was, there was no like dynamic digital program or, you know, retargeting or whatever. It was, it was just 
picking up the phone, figuring out who people were, pre-LinkedIn, you know, Portland Business Journal, you know, it was, it was a different time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wasn't that long ago. Amazing, it wasn't that long ago. I know, it really wasn't that long ago, but it was, the mechanisms were so different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I almost missed them. They were, they were maybe a little less mysterious. So you had said earlier that one of the things you had thought you might be doing would be would be uh, chef, be yeah. cooking, uh, and then you, you you realized that wasn't to be. So tell me about that for you before before Montenor. Um, why did you want to be a cook, and, and then why did you not want to be a cook? Um, I mean, I, I loved it. Like I still I still love cooking. It's part of my family culture. But there is also, you know, there's the adrenaline being on the line. There's the culture of that camaraderie in the kitchen. There's um, there's like the structure, but also the creativity within that structure, and um, and and you know I, when I, I was cooking in LA, but it was easier for me to get a job in the kitchen than as a waiter or a waitress, and so it was it was in some ways also like a path of least resistance. Wow, this is a theme. <laughs> this is good. Um, but um, I and but I loved it, and I loved it. And it was really satisfying, and. You know, I knew I never wanted to do dinner. I would, like, my dream thing would be like a, a breakfast and lunch place in a, like a small little tourist town that, so you have some controls on your time. You know, I don't love to be up till two in the morning and back at 10 prepping. It's not, I don't think that's a life mm -hmm. for me. Um, and, but I also, yeah, so I think part of it was the, the, the kitchen culture I didn't really like. I mean, it was pretty abusive. And so, you know, certainly I thought I could change that, um, but, uh, but I also knew the economics of, of a restaurant, and um, and when I was doing that was in my early 20s, and the idea of getting funding to open up something small somewhere was just way beyond mm -hmm. my scope and mm -hmm. what I knew how to do, and um, and and I you know I, I cooked a lot at events and for wine club, and you know I, I got to put that in action, and actually it's really. It's something that's served me uh, my whole life, just prof actually professionally as well as personally. But, uh, you know, I think at, at the end of the day, I think I would have gotten bored. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you've been talked back into the wine industry now by your, by your dad after, yeah. after, after many months of trying. Um, what did you expect? What were your anticipations when you when you got back in, and, and what were your kind of initial impressions of, of Montenor and of of the Oregon wine industry as you were getting to know it? Yeah, I mean, honestly, um, I don't think Montenor had a lot of respect at that time. So, um, so, you know, my dad I said, well, "Okay, Dad, I'll work for you," but we first thing we had to do is change your label. Like that's the immediate thing. This label is terrible that you designed, which he took really well. Um, <laughs> truly, I mean, he's, he raised me, so he knows what to expect. Um, and and we weren't really well respected by our neighbors. And so I think one of the things that I realized was how we were um, not involved in the community. And and you know part of that was done by the original ownership. And my dad lived by coastally. He didn't move out here until 2006. He would come out for two weeks a month and go back mm -hmm. and forth. Mm -hmm. And so. You know, I had a couple things was, wow, I need, I need referrals and I need to make my neighbors like us and respect us. And so that was something I, I realized that I needed to do. And I remember my dad said, call Maria Ponzi. She works for her dad. She'll help. And I was like, okay. Actually, she, and she was so gracious. And I wonder, I wonder if she even remembers that. But um, she was very gracious. 
And so that, that was something I realized I needed to do, is, is really engage within the community. Um, and, you know, I didn't know anything about wholesale. I didn't know anything about wine marketing. I mean, really nothing. And so there was definitely um, a learning curve, you know, I would do a work with. And I remember calling my dad in some grocery store somewhere being like, Dad, I've been waiting for 45 minutes. This guy's taking an order. Like, this isn't even a place where we're going to sell wine. This is bullshit. Like, what are we doing? And he was like, Kristen, this is called a milk run. This is, you know, this is, this is great, great. You've, you've done one. Now you know how to identify it. And so I had sort of those moments. And how lucky to have your boss be your mentor because I can call him and be like, what is happening? And he would just give it to me straight. Um, so, so I, and again, being the, the daughter of the owner is, um, you know, people are more likely to treat you not as well. So, or with as much respect. So I ended up kind of dealing with a lot of that. And, um, you know, I'd get weird backhand compliments that were like, you know, I, when I knew I found out I was working with you, I thought I was just in for a terrible day and that you're going to be a total princess, but you can come back in my car anytime. I'm like, thank you <laughs> for that backhanded compliment. Um, so I got a lot of feedback like that and that was surprising to me, but also I didn't really know what to expect. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the other thing that was really surprising to me was how hard it was for me to earn the respect of my coworkers. Mm -hmm. But I also know, you know, they had gone through a lot of upheaval and change and I'm, and, and I was 26. So I'm sure I was just like a little brat and, you know, like I, I'm sure that I behaved poorly at times as well. I, it's not, it's not them, not all it's everyone plays a role in dynamics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so those, those, those are more like personal things, but they were, that was like the most surprising mm -hmm. thing. But also, um, what was really cool for me was we we had a story we you know, there's a my you know we had really ambitious farming plans and we had ambitious plans and my dad bought a company that was undercapitalized and short on inventory and we had our, a hard we had we had a, a tough road ahead of us mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. um but I, in retrospect i didn't think this at the time but in retrospect i now realize how lucky we were to have such a solid foundation to build a brand on and um and 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 so in some ways rebranding that and taking that to market was kind of easy you know because we had just so much to mm -hmm. to to work with and um and so so now i'm like that was that was a dream mm -hmm. that was a total dream and i got really really lucky mm -hmm. i'm curious about some of the strategies you used both internally with your coworkers and externally with your neighbors and, and the industry how did you ingratiate yourself? How did you earn respect? I mean, all you can do is work hard. Um, I uh, got involved with the Washington County Wineries. I can't remember what it was called. Washington County Wineries Association, I think, at the time. And legitimately, my first meeting, they needed a new president. And somebody <laughs> was like, you just had like a sucker stamped on your forehead. And so somebody, you know, we could tell what a great job this was. Somebody. Um, nominated me I was kind of shocked and so I just said okay and but it was great I mean it was it was at a time where um, DMOs were starting to invest in um, wine associations so I was able to get a grant hire an executive director and so we actually had some programming for this little group of wineries in Washington County and so that and I, and I reached out to people that maybe had vineyards in Washington County but weren't in Washington County because so we were able to broaden our mm -hmm. scope and and got to know our neighbors that way pretty well um, El Cove was a, a, a partner in that, that we got to know well, Cooper Mountain, Ponzi, we all, we all worked together at Bologna. And so I, I think I just 
worked and and made some got some traction and um, and then burnt myself out as one does in those associations. Mm -hmm. And at the winery, you know, it was two things. One was I had to kind of I remember they were starting to track my hours, which was really annoying to me. So I would go in. I started. <laughs> this is. In my, uh, I would go in at like 5 a.m. or go in at. 10 a.m. and I would just start messing with my hours so they couldn't track me <laughs> because I realized that they were just that like the, they were just trying to find fault in me mm -hmm. and flaws and um, and so I just was like fine go for it I'm gonna I'm gonna be completely unpredictable and you're not gonna know how to handle me <laughs> but um, but I think uh, you know they also saw that I was selling wine and I was traveling and I was doing these things that were were benefiting everybody and so there were some people that it really did take some work, but um, you know, after when I left 13 years later, they're the people that we exchanged Christmas cards. You know, that we really, we really had to work on our relationship. But I ended up just having such a soft spot for them. Mm -hmm. So it's funny how that happens. Um, but yeah, hard work and also probably a little manipulation. If I'm honest. <laughs> Leadership. Yeah, sure. Leadership, <laughs> showing up, leaving at random times. But also, I do think there is like some stability there because, you know, again, my dad and I are different people. And so he approaches leadership in a different way than I do. And and so I think some people real, realize that I was actually a, an ad and together we make a, a really good person to apart. We have little deficits. Sorry, dad. Um, but I think that became really clear to people, the, the value that I brought that w had been missing before. Mm -hmm. What was your initial role that you were hired for at Montenor? What was, your, what was the kind of evolution of your role? I think it was like sales and marketing manager, or director of sales and marketing, something like that. And I stayed in that role. And then I was just starting to do more like general GMing just by neat, by default. And so then I, um, that was promoted to that. Um, I don't know why, I, I don't know why we changed my title, but it just, I mean, it wasn't like it came with a pay increase or anything. I, I don't know, but for some reason we did. There's a reason for that. Um, and then when, after the winery sold um, in 2006, um, the new ownership promoted me to president. So, um, yeah, that's sort of how that trajectory happened. You mentioned the, the kind of the, the rehabilitation needed for, for the, for the Monterey, taking over a label that needed some work. Tell me about what was, as you looked at it, what was just sort of the initial strategy and what was the sort of long-term goal? Yeah, so the initial strategy was just give it a heart, right? It, it didn't, it, it didn't really have a heart and, um, and then, so give this brand a heart, give it a face, give, give it a purpose, right? And, and that was really number one. Number two was, how do we make biodynamic farming something that can be done on a larger scale and so isn't just small expensive producers how do we make this available to everybody for every day and you know that took a lot of work in the vineyard and a lot of you know creating weird machines and stuff um and and really honestly the long-term goal was just to 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 not lose money to make money you know like to to keep growing it we had a really simple goal uh, not simple but straightforward purpose and and so that that was just we didn't have like plans to sell it that was something that just ended up needing to happen um and we didn't have um you know i, I think we thought we could slowly grow it in order um 
over the course of the time, but you know, we started out as, as a def with a deficit, and then the um, the recession was not kind to anybody. And then at, at, after the recession, even though our business was still good and we were still selling, there was just so much deferred maintenance. And I, I essentially said to my dad, like, I'm not going to buy this winery from you. So either we sell it or we're going to do something else. And mm -hmm. so we took it to market. Mm -hmm. But um, but the but the goals for the winery were pretty straightforward. It was, you know, it was. For me, it was my dad's final project before his retirement, and so it was really important for me that this was successful so that he could be comfortable when he decided to stop working, he still works. And and also to create something unique and special. Mm -hmm. And I think we achieved that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You mentioned biodynamic farming, obviously, that's the, kind of the hallmark of Montanora State yeah. now as we, as we think of it. Um, tell me about that. It's you're, it's fairly early on in the biodynamic game. Yeah. Tell me about that, the idea of scaling that and what, what, what that process entailed for you. Yeah, I mean, it was a leap of faith. I mean, I think really it was a leap of faith. I remember 2008 was the first vintage that we made wine so that could be labeled biodynamic. We had, you know, it's a three-year conversion process. Mm -hmm. So 2008 was the first vintage. And I remember saying to the winemaker, if it's really bad, I'll come in at night and just throw a bag of yeast in something. Don't worry. Like, I got you. We're going to do this. I didn't have to do that. Demeter was all fine. Um, but I, but it was definitely a leap of faith for everybody. I mean, changing how we farmed, I think it was really scary. And mm -hmm. and there were some years where, you know, we we struggled with certain things because we were off, you know, people misscouting things. And so there was a learning curve. Um, but but we knew we were doing something special and I didn't really know much about biodynamics. Um, my dad had studied it extensively. And so I was kind of like, sure, dad, this is great. I can use this to sell wine. Um, but as and I still honestly, I don't I don't I don't I've never really studied it. I've just sort of lived it. Mm -hmm. um, but it, I think for me, it became really important that we just became a model, you know, that you could do this and here are the tools it took. And you didn't have to like hand stir your preps and you could make them yourself so you didn't have to pay for that we could really just show people um that that it, that it could be done anywhere mm -hmm. and that was again that was really important to me it was one of the reasons why i felt really passionate about it because i felt like we could model some sort of change and how you know a, 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 an industry that's kind of a monoculture can can diversify what they're doing on their on their properties mm -hmm. You talked about it as, as a marketing tool. I'm curious about that. Um, when you took it to market, uh, how how well known was Biodynamic? How, how much did you have to explain? Yeah, a, a lot, but I learned to just dumb it down, really. I mean, it, certainly over the course of time, people wanted to have more mm -hmm. uh, you know, in-depth conversations about it. But in the beginning, I would say things like, it's like organic, organic's not what you're doing, but biodynamics are the add to the property. Or I would say, you know, I know we don't have any scientific data to back this up, but what I can tell you is that our vineyard crew has been there for 30 years and they say they've never seen the vineyards look this good and the grapes be, come, like the quality of the grapes be this high. Mm -hmm. Those to and, and so I would just use small sound bites and small things in order, instead of trying to like describe all of it. Um, because there are things that I don't really understand because I haven't studied it. You know, people are like, oh, are you, you know, the cow horn, that's always a cliche. You dance with your dad in the moon. I'm like, no, um, we don't. <laughs> so, you know, I had to, I really found like I had to bring it down. I had to bring it down to earth and 
if you got lost up in the more theoretical things, you would lose people. So it was, how do I give them a simple way to talk to their customer base and tell them why this is not just some crappy wine on the on the natural wine shelf? You know, this is like a this is there's there's a purpose here, and this is really what this means. And so it started out pretty hard. I mean, you'd have it was lots of conversations, and now it's you know people know what it is, and in some ways it's kind of maybe passe. Um, We've eclipsed, maybe not. I don't. I don't sell. I don't know actually what they deal with in the um, in the field anymore. But um, it was definitely like a, a curve, mm-hmm. a learning curve mm-hmm. for everybody. But ultimately, it was great. I mean, we were at some. We were at one point the largest estate grown biodynamic producer in the country. I mean, we were producing a lot of wine and um, and all farmed this way. Actually, really full of integrity. Even though I said the thing about the yeast, um, <laughs> I never did that. But. Um, and and that was you know that was really that was really cool and I, I think it we 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 did we like achieved that that was a pretty pretty mm-hmm. cool thing and people were responding to it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it got us in places that I think we would never have been able to get in before then mm-hmm. I mean really we were so well represented and really great accounts um, and I'm pretty lucky for that that helped kind of turn the ship of that brand as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about closer to home as, as you were selling wine locally, your, your DTC customers, what, what was their reaction to Montour? Did they have a preconception about you? Did you have to break, kind of break down some, some walls there? Yeah, I mean, so again, this is like early 2000s, mid 2000s. So DTC was a different animal back then. And so, yes, we definitely had people that were really aghast when we started to charge a tasting fee. $5 was too much or, um, or people that had this like lifetime tasters card, which was free and they got a particular percentage off or, um, and so we, we, we kind of had to deal with them, but, but we expanded our reach. I don't even know if this was effective, but one of the first things I did was um, got a booth at like the, the um, Pearl Farmer's Market, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, and I, and I just poured wine there and we were able to get people out to come out to the winery um, based on the new messaging and it kind of brought down the, you know, from Oregon's premier wine estate to something that was a little more high touch and crafted and, and family oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we, we built that customer base. Now the wine wasn't, is still not, I mean, they certainly have higher tiers, but it's, it was never a very expensive premium product, luxury product. So we didn't take them too far, but some people were into the farming and some people were just into the wine or the price point, you know? so so. I, contrary to what it might sound, I, I rarely let in with biodynamics. You know, I, I read, I let in with the value propositions of, of you know, cost to quality ratio and estate grown and et cetera, et cetera. And biodynamics was a value add. And so if that was important to you, you would latch onto that and that becomes the conversation. And if it's not, you just move on. So, um, yeah, I mean, Every customer sees something else in a product, and so thankfully we had uh, we had a bunch of options or you know value mm-hmm. propositions that people could connect to that were really authentic to what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
You talked earlier about your, your service to, to organizations. Uh, we have Willamette Valley Wanger Association, OPC, IPNC, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. You, you mentioned kind of burning out on those, but before that, yeah. I'm curious about what led you to join the ones you did and, and kind of accomplishments that you are, that are noteworthy in your mind. Sure. Um, I think I joined the WVWA. I don't, maybe, I don't even, I'm, I don't know how I actually was invited onto that board because it was when it was first moved from like the tiny little one to a, a multi-person board and I was by far the youngest person in the room and one of a f only a few women um, and I was so intimidated like I would sit there in these meetings and I would in retrospect you don't do this because it means you're not listening but at the time I'd like like rephrase and rephrase the questions I were gonna I was gonna ask because I was just so like a little freaked out because I was at this table with all these people that I respected. Um, but again, it comes down to work. So I ended up on the marketing committee and I'd had this altercation with our Washington distributor. And um, they said to me, well, you know, or Washingtonians don't drink wine the way Oregonians drink Washington wine. So, you know, we're never going to do well here. But, you know, maybe if you guys did some tastings and I was like, fine. We'll do some tastings. So I went to the WVWA and I said, guys, I think we should do a tasting in Washington. Let's do a trade followed by consumer. The consumer can pay for the trade. And Sue Horseman at the time just ran with it. And so that was the first, um, I wish I could remember what it called. It was called, it wasn't Pinot in the City at the time. It had a different name, but that was the first Willamette Valley Road show. Um, and, and then of course that program continued until it stopped um, COVID. Um, and so I, I, I got to do that and be kind of fundamental in starting that program, which I think was really beneficial. Um, and certainly it grew beyond me and I, you know, um, but I was, I, I was part of the team that founded that. And then um, on that marketing committee, Brian O'Donnell came to the table with a, you know, a, kind of a, a philosophical question or more of a challenge, you know. So if people don't think of Oregon when they think of Pinot Noir, how are we gonna create some ownership over this? So. I led a, um, you know, a rebranding, which was, it was supposed to be a, a, an ad, consumer driven ad campaign. So this is 2010, 11, like that, um, about Oregon Pinot Noir. And so we did the branding and all of that stuff. It ended up later being just sort of, that is now the, the visual identity of the Willamette Valley Winery Association. So it went beyond just focusing on Pinot Noir, but that was a, a process that I led. Um, and so, um, it's funny, I forget when I see the logos and stuff because it is such a far thing. Um, it's been it's been ten years, but um, but that was that was pretty that was that was a really great achievement. And um, so yeah, I really I liked that. And uh, you know, for IPNC, I had the opportunity to be president one year, which was pretty cool. And I got to see you know how that can benefit people. And at OPC, I've been the longest standing president because of COVID. This is now my third year, which is kind of exhausting. Um, but I, I see it as an opportunity. So trying to use this as an opportunity to improve an already fantastic program, but how to kind of take it into this current climate that we're in. Mm -hmm. so, I, I, so I got really lucky on the work I got to do and the timing of, of getting involved with those things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the auction was created to support the Pinot campaign. You know, like it was really, it was a really dynamic time and we were working with, you know, Pat and David and Harry and also there were young people like me. And so we got to do really cool stuff and like integrated these different um, generations. Um, and, and it was still really predominantly owner, you know, owner operator mm -hmm. then. 
And so it was a really special time, I feel like. I mean, maybe everybody would say that. But for me, I felt like I, I, I got to be involved at a really pivotal time mm -hmm. in, the, in the industry. Mm -hmm. With things like OPC and IPNC, obviously um, fairly unique to Oregon, uh, uniquely Oregon things. I'm curious, uh, your time on the boards with them, what was what what were the kind of the hopes for for the future for those kind of organizations? What, what now that they were established, what was the next thing you wanted to do, or the, or that the board wanted to do when you were there? Uh, I think IPNC, what we were dealing with at the time, and I'm sure is still a challenge, was really dealing with just. The budget. I mean, what we delivered on as an event, and um, was very high quality, and 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 trying to make sure that we could find, create an event that would attract people for the next generation. Because we had a we had a great loyal group of clientele. The event was getting more expensive to execute because of the world, <laughs> and so how do we take? IPNC and really be able to reach our current and without alienating the current base and reach like the next generation. And um, so, I mean, obviously, Amy, Whitney, I wasn't on the board with Whitney. She had left when I started, but she had started some programs and, um, and Amy and Anne are amazing. And so I think that was one of the main things we were grappling with. Mm -hmm. is how do we continue to sell this event out? How do we Find new and find a new audience, and then how do we keep our cost value ratio? Um, OPC was interesting because, and it still is. I mean, right now we're grappling with, you know, what does the industry look like? What is the pool of candidates? It is really an incredibly powerful event, um, and people. I feel like every year somebody ends up moving to Oregon because of it, and it's really. I mean, it's a really amazing event with. And we, it still is like, you know, where other things are run, you know, run by all staff. This is really still an organization of volunteers. And yes, Morgan and her team and Sue and her team did all the bulk of the work. I mean, I certainly wouldn't want to minimize that. But on the committee level or what was the board, I mean, the education, the, the routing, all of that really came from these volunteer board members. And so that collaboration, which is, you know, one of the tenants that Oregon used to sell their wine on was really visible and really infectious. And so, you know, I think we, we realized that we don't want to lose that spirit because that really is such a unique experience for people. But we now have to look at, you know, the, the, the landscape has changed. You know, A buyers are now being flown to Kingdom Come to go to these events and we're expecting people to get themselves out here. Mm -hmm. How do we address that? Mm -hmm. What are, what's our pool of, 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 of available um, nominees now? You know, how, has, how have things sh um, shaped up and shaken out after this past year? And so that is really, I think, fundamentally the biggest hurdle. I mean, obviously, prior to that, we were trying to figure out how we could make it work so to keep the ROI high for wineries but um, and make the investment, because it is a big investment mm -hmm. to be an OPC in, in addition to your dues, but also your time and wine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so that, that was always a thing that we're, we've grappled with. And so now we're, that continues to be the KPI. Everything that we talk about is, okay, how does this go back to, to the return on investment for wineries and campers? How do we increase that? Um, and how do we maintain the spirit of what is just like such a unique event? Mm -hmm. um, but I think any industry is going to have to continue to work to, to make, keep themselves relevant and to keep themselves, you know, especially Oregon kind of pushing the boundaries. That's, you know, that's what we, 
we've done. Mm -hmm. Remember, I don't know the OWB there, OWB years ago, the whole like farming on the edge thing that they did, which I don't think they use anymore, but really is, um, I think, a really great metaphor for what the industry can do mm -hmm. and was doing at the mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. So since you're still the OPC president, I'm going to ask, uh, as you do look ahead, or as you are looking ahead now, what do you kind of see for the future of, of OPC? What is it going to look like? Oh, boy, that is a great question. Um, I mean, I think we're hoping that in 2022, we will be back in person. Um, but, I mean, your, your guess is as good as mine, whether or not that happens. Um, I think we're realizing that we have to be more flexible in our invitation process. And so maybe instead of inviting a person, we invite an account mm -hmm. and they can nominate a person within that account. Um, that's not official. Um, but I think we're trying to figure out how we can make sure we're getting the best, knowing that perhaps the pool of applicants has shrunk so mm -hmm. drastically. And, mm -hmm. and trying to balance um, trying to balance retail, which as we all know has just driven sales, um, and and restaurant even though there's and small you know independently owned retail because smaller producers don't have a you know a, approval at kroger nationally right so how do we um how do we find a balance and how do we find those key accounts mm -hmm. and get them out here if there's if their if their staff has shrunk or if um you know what their business look like is, is a lot smaller now mm -hmm. so I, I think we're grappling with, with really how to do this. But again, the KPI is always, are we, are we, is this decision still in the spirit of Oregon Pinot Camp and, and the Oregon industry? And is the return on investment still high for wineries and, mm -hmm. and um, campers? And that's, you know, everything goes back to that. Mm -hmm. and, and it's like a checkpoint. Mm -hmm. So you're here now, yeah. here, here, here at Abbott Claim and Angela yeah. State. Tell me about that. What You mentioned kind of one of the reasons you left was wanting to kind of do it on your own. Yeah. How did this opportunity come about and, and, and what made you take this one? Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, I'd, I had felt like, you know, I was ready for a new challenge before, like long before I left. And then we sold the winery and I stayed for that transition. And, um, and that was really hard. I love my coworkers there and still keep in touch with many of them. Um, but I knew that it was time. I'm like, a, I'm like a real fiercely independent person. So working with my dad was wonderful and the greatest privilege of my life, but also like frustrating because I'm so independent. So it's complicated. <laughs> um, so the, the opportunity came through a recruiter and I, um, I remember the day of my interview, I walked in and Albon was there and the owner, Anthony Beck, and someone, uh, his chief investment officer at the time. And I didn't really know what I was getting into. They just said, this is a new project, it's Abbott Claim. I didn't know any, I didn't know Angela was involved with this. I really had no idea what I was walking into. And what he said to me was, we're starting a new brand um, and, we, and it's a luxury brand. And so you're gonna be managing construction, building out a brand, building out an entire platform. And then you're gonna take our current brand and completely reposition re, um, it in the market. Because it's not working, we need it repositioned. And I thought, well, that's pretty dynamic. I know how to do a rebrand. I know how to do that. And I've never built a program from the ground up and I've never run a construction project or anything like that. It's completely new to me. Although my whole family is in construction, so I should have been more versed <laughs> in that, but in New Jersey. But, um, um, and so that seemed like a really cool opportunity. So it was some, something that was really in my wheelhouse and something that was gonna be a challenge. And also it was a this is a luxury program 
and that was also not in my wheelhouse. So I felt like it was a really nice balance of, of um, challenge and comfort. And I really liked Anthony and I really liked Albon and I felt like, you know, we had an aligned vision of mm -hmm. what we were doing and, and, and we really did. And it was when I kind of got in there and I saw how dynamic it was because he has wineries in South Africa. You know, I said, well, why don't we start an import company? Why are you giving your, why are we, you're giving your margin to this, this, these importers. Why aren't you just self-importing? So my first project was really starting um, Beck Family Estates. That was, I think I did that within my first week just to have like a hierarchy of LLCs and then, and then start this import company and hire, I don't run it, we hired a, um, a VP of sales who manages the team and all the distribution partners, but, and just, you know, for very obvious reason, that makes a lot of sense. It's not like I was rocket science, I just was the impetus, I think. And I'm sure they had thought of it before. Um, and then just the opportunity to look at, to build brands based on, you know, what we had and the values, but also looking at demographics and demographic shifts and how you know, how you can have, um, you know, uh, different price points and use your economy of scale and, and but really have different projects like the, where the spirit is really different. And so COVID did not serve me in this period. So, you know, our we it was the really complicated rebrand and we had um, we walked away from some land opportunities in March because we just didn't know what was happening. and. Um, and so it ended up being like a very complicated thing. I mean, the, the, the opening of the winery was delayed because construction was slowed down because rightfully so, only one contractor on, on site at a time. You know, like it was very, and as, as they should have, there's, we didn't, there was nothing wrong done, but um, it ended up being not as smooth as I would have liked. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm really proud of what we've created. And, you know, I think Angela continues to evolve and um, and that's really fun, actually, and to see kind of how we can push this brand um, digitally and also in the marketplace. And then Abbott is just starting to get its feet because we opened up, we opened up right at the end of the summer, right before the fires, right before everything shut down. I mean, it was just like, it was a, like a kind of hilarious, if I guess hilarious because the word um, chain of events, but I'm really, really proud of what the team here has done and how we've been able to make up for lost time and um, and then of course you know the, the the sales import company is is doing really well because again we have lots of different price points so I feel really good about that um, yeah so I mean I got I got a chance to really kind of stretch my legs in business and learning from people that are dealing with all different companies and I can write a business model really quickly now and a budget, which is a really cool thing mm -hmm. to be able to do. Um, and I really love the team that we built here in Oregon. That, I mean, I think that to me is like the, the, one of the most valuable things that I've done in the last two years is I feel like the people that I work with here are really special, mm -hmm. which I really like. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to talk about both of the brands a little bit because they both present, like you said, present unique challenges yeah. to you. So let's talk about Angela, first of all, though. Yeah. Why, why, why the thought that it wasn't working as well as it should have been, and what was the idea for the rebrand? What was you, what was their idea? What was your idea? Sure. So I think, I mean, I think they thought it wasn't working well because it just the sales weren't there, and and it was also um, when it was started, it was kind of like a I hate to say hands off. That's not the right word, but you know, um, Anthony partnered with Ken. Ken made the wine. 
and Anthony partnered with J JFW to sell the wine. So Angela didn't have a, a, uh, an identity that was like kind of its own. It, the wine was looped in with Ken and the sales was looped in with JFW. So, mm -hmm. so if you took one of the, you know, those pieces were not connected, but not, uh, not, not aligned and also not very clear. So, um, and I think, you know, sales weren't as what, as, as what he would have liked. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, again, I looked at it holistically. I said, okay, so you want Abbott claim to be this, you know, luxury, very high touch conversation one-on-one. -on -one. Okay, that's this type of demographic. So that's great. So how can you, how can, you know, everyone wants to be everything to everyone. You can't do that with one brand. So, so how can we position Angela, which at the time was, um, well, I think there had been quite a bit of discounting, but it was originally built to like a $50 Pinot Noir. You know, how can we take that and reach a different demographic? Mm -hmm. And so I remember we had a retreat, maybe my first or second week of, of work. And, you know, I said, I think what we need to look at is here's, your, you know, you have your high-end um, boomers and, you know, younger people who are looking for discovery and um, a very high-touch product. And then let's let's take Angela and, and kind of position it so it's more of a lifestyle brand. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and so that, that was really where that positioning came from. Just looking at the, the demographics that are underserved and um, you know, what could be, I think, tolerated in regards to price point. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that, I mean, and they, the Becks were on board with that. I mean, they, they definitely said, they're like, great, go for it. Which was great, really, mm -hmm. really cool mm -hmm. for me, very. And I think, you know, we had, we definitely, Angela and Montenor had a lot in common. There was a lot, a lot of baggage, and it, and it was, it was pretty complicated. Um, and I almost feel like after two years, two and a half years, we're almost like at the baseline. Like I feel like maybe we, we're just still, and again, COVID did not help, but, um, but we, you know, we're just finally starting to turn, to turn that brand and mm -hmm. to we've let go of some historical stuff and now we're, we're looking forward. And I, you know, I, 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 I like being at the baseline. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, it's better than having to, you know, scrounge your way up. And, um, and Abbott is, you know, again, it was, a, it was this really singular vision. And so in some ways that's a really easy thing to execute. You know, you, you it, that's great. And you can just use your very obvious, values and you hire the right team and you make really great wine and you farm really well and you you get to do all the right things and that's really and so that's really linear and mm -hmm. you can do that angel was definitely a, a more of a challenge and and it's still it still requires work and i think we're still you know especially now that we're seeing just what's happening just how wine is being sold you know okay so this is going to be we're going to do a lot of digital work how do you how, how do you become a, a 45 30 38 45 dollar digital brand when people can't try the wine what is your you know how do you reach your customer and how do you get them to take a chance on you know a perishable product once you open it it's gone in an hour not not really but you know what i'm saying it's it's different than buying napkins or shoes you know what you're going to get this is a this we're, we're we're asking people to take a chance to reach this new customer base so um you know, learning what is resonating with people and be testing different types of really kind of learning digital marketing and, and ads and SEO. That's, that's also really cool because you, it's just a whole new technology that I'm having to really get involved with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So with, with Abbott Claim, obviously the, 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 uh, 
you have a linear vision, like you say, yeah. a singular linear vision, but you also have a very crowded marketplace of, yeah. of Oregon premium Pinot Noir. Yeah. Tell me about that. How do you attack a problem like that, and how do you how do you make sure that, that story is fits in with the rest? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is one thing is just patience is part of it, right? You have to like 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 I said when I started at Montenor, I just had to work hard and I had to show up and I had to prove myself. In some ways, we have to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to. Every single person that comes through our doors has to experience what we want them to experience, which is a high level of hospitality and to really understand what we're doing here. So it's almost like one at a time, one person at a time. So it takes some, it takes patience. And, mm -hmm. and I think, you know, we, we're, I, we're trying to build a company that will be here for a long time. So not falling into the trap of discounts or how to like incentivize people to buy more, but really just selling the wine on the value, the, the, the quality of what's in the bottle. And, um, and part of that is just true hospitality. And um, Andrew, who he hired is just oozes that. It's really, really nice. Um, and so I think that is, it's just a, it's just gonna be a trek. And so we have gotten some really great traction and what we're finding is a lot of our people are referrals from people that came. And so we know that means that people that are coming are having a great experience. We've had some people come back four or five times this mm -hmm. year with new friends and that that's really validating. And so we just continue to kind of walk forward and beat the drum. Um, similarly, we've been lucky, again, we have the sales company to get some really high end key placements around the country. Um, and so we're slowly starting to get just, I mean, we never assumed this would be a big distribution product at all, but we're getting some placements that I think are going to be really good in the long run too. So, you know, it's patience, it's finding the right places where you can, you know, you can make um, headway. Mm -hmm. And it is just kind of being unrelenting on the details, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You know, not, not compromising to short-term gain you know it's it's like okay here's our this is the north star don't compromise on that north star and and let's be really thoughtful about how we get there and for everything financially with the product mm -hmm. i mean mm -hmm. keith changed the entire way we we pruned this year um just looking at longevity north star and um i don't think there's a science to it i think it's just it's just consistency and and again not compromising mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. one thing you brought up that that was interesting was the, the sort of changing demographics and of course we hear a lot about that when it comes to wine sales the kind of the fear of the next who, who are we going to sell wine to now in in your experience and as you're looking ahead what is the wine sale strategy going to be as you're looking at the, the upcoming generations of wine drinkers Oof. um I mean, obviously brand loyalty is kind of out the window, um, but we all know that people are buying on values. So I, I think it's really important for and for brands to have a why, like mm -hmm. a real why. And, and um, if you don't have that, I think that's a deficit. Um, and I, I think we actually struggle a little bit with that with Angela. Um, and so really working with ownership to really understand, you know, why are we doing this and, and why, why is this wine worth buying outside of in this crowded marketplace? Um, and I, and I'm, you know, so I think that is, that's key for anybody. Um, and I think it's so much now and, and especially post COVID people are looking for an emotional connection and comfort. And, um, 
and some and also I think some people are really wanting to stretch themselves and so you know that's that's pretty vague but because um, I because I think we're just seeing what what the what the market's coming to mm -hmm. but what we're seeing is that people are really excited to be introduced to new opportunities through the brands that they like and um, and then they're excited to be able to kind of lean into the brands that they like and um, and people are willing to take some risks. So, I mean, I think Gen X um, is probably underserved in a lot of a lot of Oregon wine marketing. Um, I think you know we've really focused on trade marketing, which is a certain language, and we haven't done a lot of consumer marketing. And you can look at the brands that have and haven't, and you can see that. And so I think there needs to be a shift to consumer marketing, um, especially given all the consolidation and wholesale, you know, you, you, we have to create the demand for ourselves and that's expensive and that's lengthy and it's time consuming, but it can be done. So, and, and we're lucky that we have a major metropolitan area that, and we, that's really close. And so we can do a lot of that in person. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I, I think, I think consumer marketing is really where, where we are going to have to go. And, and the last year probably really kickstarted a lot of people's programs to, to think that way. You know, I can't just talk about clones and barrel programs and soil because there are some people that are, that's what they're looking for, but there are other people that, that just mm -hmm. intimidates them, mm -hmm. but they still have, they still want to invest in money in, in wine. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's finding a way to engage with, um, with a larger a group of people that aren't just really speaking to the trade. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in your, in your work at Montenor and here, have you developed kind of an overarching kind of marketing and sales philosophy? Huh. No, I don't think so because I think everything requires its own, its own, its own strategy. Um, I know you're asking me about philosophy. Mm -hmm. I, um, I mean, huh. No, I, I don't think so. I, I, I think, Every, every winery is, has its unique set of challenges. And so really you have to, maybe this is a philosophy, you have to, you have to, to look at those sets of challenges and then, and then you know, chart your path based on them. And um, everyone has different strengths and um, every brand has different strengths. And you know, I, I think for me, it's, it's the, a big part of sales and marketing is the people that you're working with. And, are people happy? Do they feel fulfilled? And that work is visible in, in the work that people see. And so I think this isn't necessarily about sales and marketing, but it's more about culture and, and trying to create a, a, a work environment that's really positive and collaborative. And I think, you know, your sales and marketing is somewhat an extension of, of, of how your business operates. Mm -hmm. So you have brought up the dreaded 2020 a couple of times already in this interview. Uh -huh. Obviously, multiple challenges within the last year. Uh, I want to start with the pandemic itself. Uh, you mentioned uh, you're just trying to get brands going and, and, and re-going, and, re uh, and you're hit with that. So tell me about sort of the effect on your wine life and, and, and your work here, and your and as you saw it, the, the effect the pandemic had on the industry in general. Yeah, I mean, I, it was, I had gone through the recession, so I had, I was like kind of PTSD, like there are immediate things that I had strategies for but I realized that strategy is out the window we can't do this so how am I going to you know cash is king 
how am I going to get the cash in the door quickly so that I, because I can see that this is going to be a long-term disruption. Like I, you know, remember how sweet it was when we were like two weeks at home. Long spring break. But I, but I'd been, I'd been doom scrolling about COVID since the end of 2019. So um, I, you know, I was like, we're shutting, you know, I, I think the woman I was running our tasting room at the time wasn't particularly thrilled with me. I was like, no, we're shutting the tasting room down this day. And everyone ended up having to shut down on that day. And, but immediately just was like, we, we, DTC, um, online e-commerce hadn't been a, a priority for Angela. It hadn't been, you know, really something that had started. So the, the first real activity we did was the, around the holidays of 2019, we built a holiday catalog. And so we had some traction. So the first thing I did was like, well, we're now, now it's on. Like we have to, we have to communicate with our customers if only because we're all at home and there's this, I didn't really have the foresight about what was going to happen. Um, but we essentially, you know, had to shut down the entire direct consumer department. And I, I took it on because I, I knew that we weren't going to be able to support it. And I didn't know how long this was going to last. So that ended up being pretty, pretty, uh, you know, punishing, <laughs> honestly, you know, I had two kids at home, little kids, I have five and eight year old and my husband works full time. And so it was, you know, doing all of basically running an entire e-commerce program, which was blowing up, which was awesome. And then doing my regular job, which is all of the other things. And, um, yeah. And then, and then trying to get capsules ordered, and, and Italy was shut down. And so I think I called every single capsule maker in the US that made capsules for salad dressings. Like I called everybody and I finally found one that could do a turnaround in the normal 12 weeks. And, you know, but I had to choose stock colors. You know, like it, I had, we had some, unfortunately we had to make some, um, you know, accommodations to actually make it work. And that was not awesome. Um, and really, and really hard. and. And it was hard for my kids, you know, but also I think one of the best things that came out of the pandemic is that you didn't have to hide that you were a parent where before I feel like I never, other than I did take my kids to work with me for six months. So they showed up at most board meetings. But um, after that, it, I didn't talk about it. Like my kids were, that's my home life and that nobody needed to know about them because I had nothing to do with work. And then it turned every single phone call I was on, my kids on my lap or interviews, you know, like my kids on the other side of the door and we all struggled. And so, um, so it was really, that was a really hard time. I mean, I, I was, I definitely at the end of the summer, I mean, I cried uncle, um, probably in May, right before our wine club shipment, I spoke to somebody and I was like, I need, I need your help. Can you help? Cause we talked about working together, but she didn't want a full-time job. And she's like, but if you ever need a, pro you have a project. So I was like, I have a project. <laughs> so she helped me do that. And, um, because I realized that I was getting so buried in the day-to-day -day activities that I couldn't think about the future. And so that was a huge break. And then it was a really, and then I saw this as an opportunity to completely redirect Angela. So we did the summer pop-up with, with the Airstream last summer, which was really fun. And I was able to take, take what was really traumatic, but also use it as an opportunity to, to try to springboard a new message and a new vision. Hard time to do it. You know, it, it was really successful, the people that we could get out here, but, but you know, our old customer base um, was used to something else. And so trying to find a new customer base and this um, atmosphere is really 
It took a lot of work, but um, a lot of people came with us, which was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so that was, I mean, I'm tired thinking about it. It was really hard. Um, we you know, were able to kind of rebuild the program and, and the team. It, it changed. It never expanded to what it was. We, our needs completely changed, and that was, that was just what happens. And really, I don't think we, we didn't hire somebody for that program until the end of the year. I mean, really, we just kind of trying to see what was happening. You know, I, I, I'm always conservative with money and wanting to make sure that there's always a, a benefit, mm-hmm. cost-benefit there. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the industry, I think... Um, they, you know, a lot of people, as I said, kind of got forced into consumer marketing, and I think that's great. I think it's really, really good. Um, you know, DTC has always been, I think, I don't think it was the holy grail. You know, everyone thought you wanted to have a really great distribution network, even though your margin is so much slimmer. And so I think, but DTC is always where your, your money was, your profit was. So I think that's pretty good for the industry. I, I worry about us having enough people really here to support how many of us there are and so um, you know a lot of work that we do at Angela is really just reaching out because I know that there's a finite of people in the Portland area so how do we like mm-hmm. find new customers mm-hmm. digitally far away um, again trying to just diversify our customer base um, and so I, I mean I think people had to learn a lot of new tricks. I mean, I think it really pushed people to, to go outside of their comfort zone and engage customers in the way that they can. And it pushed us a little outside of like our archaic little bubble, you know? Um, and uh, I, I think that's really good for the industry. And so COVID's terrible, it's awful. But I think I think in some ways we, we got pushed outside of uh, outside of where we were comfortable and I think that was really mm-hmm. probably necessary, mm-hmm. um, but it was so hard. I mean, how did, how bal- how you balance your family and in, in like such a traumatic scenario, and when you have a big job. I mean, we had to hire a nanny because I realized I couldn't I couldn't do it. My children were not were not they shouldn't watch 14 hours of TV a day. <laughs> they liked it. They were really into it, but that was not good. And so I I you know. Fortunately, that meant that I had to come to the office or I had to go work somewhere else because I can't, you can't be home with the nannies there because it's terrible for them. So it really forced me out of the house. So I got really lucky because it meant that I had a, uh, a um, like a, what's the word I'm looking for? A, like an outlet? An outlet, but you know, like uh, a daily schedule. Mm-hmm, like, you know, I mm-hmm. had things that I could do mm-hmm. and that was probably good. It got me out of the house. It got me out of my head. So I think I, in some ways I got really lucky. Um, but uh, you know, there's nothing good about this, but I mean, just there isn't. But um, but I think if you had to find a silver lining, I think learning new tricks and I think in realizing that we have to engage with the customers differently is great. And um, and just really looking at our models, mm-hmm. I think is probably important. Mm-hmm. So with that said, what do you see as you look ahead for the industry? What are you, uh, coming out of the pandemic, or what, what, what has changed that will stay the same? And, and what does the future of the industry look like from your perspective? I don't mean to be like negative Nelly, but I don't know if we're out. Like I, I, I feel like this On is, the eventual yeah, coming out side, yeah, I guess I mean, is what I meant like to say. I feel like we're going into it now. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think direct consumer is gonna, is gonna be a huge investment. We're gonna see a lot of investment in that. Um, for the industry, and I think that's important. Um, 
I think w there's a dearth of great DTC employees right now, and that is a real area of growth. And so if I were new to the industry, that's what I would get really good at, because I think that's going to be a, uh, it's, it is a need now and will continue to be a need. And our programs here are still kind of in their infancy when you, when you compare it to Napa. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think there's a lot of room for growth and to, to do kind of cool things. Um, I also think we're gonna have to contend with some of the, the issues that we have, you know, our farming overtime laws, pricing cogs. I think there's, there's some real production hurdles we're gonna have to look at and contend with and figure out how we're gonna make sustainable business models um, it's already expensive to grow and make wine here, but maybe some of the old assumptions on what leads to quality need to be questioned in order to make that work. Um, and, and I think we're going to have to get more comfortable mechanizing. I know that's not sexy. I get it. I mean, Albon would be like, roll his eyes at me, but you know, it's, I think, I think we're going to have to learn how to, you know, kind of balance the craft and just the beauty of it and and also um, innovation to, mm -hmm. to really make you know sustainable business models. It, wine, wine was hard before, but now it's really going to be challenging. And um, great that people are going to be focusing on a higher margin income, a revenue stream. But um, you know, there's going to be we're going to have to do that on do it on both ends. Mm -hmm. I neglected to ask the other part of the 2020 question, which was, of course, harvest yeah. and the fires. Um, yeah. Tell me again, from your perspective, uh, the impact on, on on you and your work here, and and sort of the 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 workarounds you had to come up with, or the or the, the the things you had to sort out. You know, I feel so lucky that our owner is is also uncompromising, and so wouldn't tolerate us putting out wine that he that we didn't that we didn't think was great. He trusts Albon, obviously. Um, so in some ways we got really lucky, um, but we, you know, we decided against probably his preferences to bring in all the fruit we had on the property. We didn't make anyone buy anything and we, and for all of our growers, we, you know, they said, do you want it? And we we're like, well, we don't, but we will buy it if you need to sell it to us. And some people are like, I have crop insurance. It doesn't matter. Don't take it. And other people needed us to buy it. So we tried to do right by every grower and and are the people who purchased um, um, the uh, grapes from us also, you know, really did right by us. So you could, I, I felt really proud to be in the industry um, with the people that we were working with because they really did kind of honor that. Other people didn't, but the groups that we work with did, and we did the same. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm, I, we're really lucky. I mean, beyond lucky that we didn't, we didn't have to make super hard choices. Like we just realized that. We brought it all in because it was a beautiful vintage. It was Heath's her first year managing these vineyards and it was great. And so we were like, well, we can't let that sit. We, we have to drop it anyway. We can't, we're like, it's gonna cost us. We already have the overhead. We're bringing in s some shard and some Syrah. So let's let's just bring it in. We're already doing it. And of course we've sold it all off on bulk. It's, it's not, we're not gonna bottle it except for a little bit of rosé and shard. Shard's actually quite beautiful, but, um, and the Syrah, untouched, great. But that's just a tiny little bit for the Angela Wine Club. Um, so um, it was like, I think we, at the end of the har end of harvest, we all went to the coast for a day, a night to go crabbing. And we were like, to the best worst harvest in history. You know, it was really, that's what it was. It was sobering. And we realized that this is probably not the first time that it was going to happen. And um, this is perhaps kind of like 
the dawn of a new dynamic and that we were witnessing. Um, and that's terrifying, but you just make the best decision you can in the moment. And um, so we, we brought in the fruit and thankfully we've been able to sell it or sell the, the bulk. And, um, and, and again, we're really lucky to have an owner who doesn't want us to compromise on the product that we make. So I think other people had a much harder time than we did. And I feel, I totally know how lucky we are. And I feel very thankful of that. But it was like being on Dune, you know, it was really, as you know, it was crazy. Very post-apocalyptic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was, I, yeah. Uh, anyway, um, as, as you look ahead then for, for yourself uh, your, uh, and for the future here, what, what are you looking forward to? What are you kind of foreseeing for your work and your future and, and for the, the brand here, brands here? Um, you know, I, you know, I'm just the type of person that wants to continue to grow and be doing things that are challenging and um, trying to push the envelope and that's just, that's just me and that's what I'm continue, going to continue to do. Um, I think we, you know, we have a lot of work to do for both brands. We really, you know, we're, as I said, we're just at a baseline with Angela, so we're really working to build that and, and and consumer marketing, as I said, I think is the future. So really trying to find our voice within that. And mm -hmm. that's a really fun project and really um, challenging, especially, you know, for the, this category. And so, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to finding the voice um, and honing that in. And um, I mean, it's, it, it's really cool to see the traction and it's really cool to see um, people respond to it and, and, and to know you're not done. And mm -hmm. so that's, it's mm -hmm. like positive reinforcement, keep going, keep going. And I think we're probably the same thing here with Abbott Claim. You know, we, we know, as I said earlier, we have a lot of hard work to do and we have to, everything we do has to be as well as it can possibly be done and, and in order to last and mm -hmm. to really stand out in this very crowded place of great premium wines. And so, I mean, we just, every, we are one foot in front of the other working really hard we certainly haven't. Buildings open, seeing people, wines labeled, websites are up. It's just that's just that's just the beginning. We have so much hard work left to do, and um, and it, it, we're you know it's exciting. Mm -hmm. um, and I and I think perhaps a lot of people are in the same position. You know, we've had this year that was hectic and stressful and just unbelievable. And yet we're kind of nowhere, right? So it's like we almost lost a year, even though that year was so hard to get through. And um, so, you know, on, onwards. Mm -hmm. just, there's nothing else to do, but then just to keep going and mm -hmm. do it as well as you can possibly do it. Mm -hmm. It's a very, hu a very human answer too, to, to 2020, just onwards. Yeah, I, what else are you gonna do? I mean, I, I don't know what else to do other than just keep moving mm -hmm. and I mean, that was kind of what you did last year. You just kept going, and so if you stopped, <laughs> it was too shocking. <laughs> but um, yeah. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned earlier that your one of your pieces of advice would be to would be to become a DTC expert if you wanted to work in the Oregon wine industry. What other words of wisdom would you have for someone who wanted to get into the Oregon wine industry? <sighs> ah, okay. Yeah. So I think obviously DTC is a great area of growth, and that is, I think not sexy because it's a lot of customer service, but I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, I think 
if you were going to get into the industry, learn, learn it, learn the supply chain, learn how that all works, try to understand different parts of it, you know, um, get involved with all the pieces because all the pieces inform the other. Mm -hmm. So if you're completely, you know, focused on one thing, you're going to miss how that intertwines with the other departments in the other areas. And, um, and so I, I don't think you can really, no matter where you are, you can really do your job well without understanding what, understanding what other people are doing. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I not everyone would agree with me about this, but I do think people get so seduced by wine. I mean, it's such a sexy thing and it's so, elegant and it's beautiful and there's vineyards and whatever but um and and that's true and yet it's still an industry and these are still businesses and um you know employees still need health insurance and etc cetera, etc cetera, you know and so um I, I think realizing that this is not an easy job it's not an easy industry and that you this isn't going to be a nine to five job it just isn't and um and this isn't where you get to go and just kind of like drink wine and eat a baguette. Um, so I think that like people, people need to be aware of that. Like mm -hmm. really look at what you want your life to look at, look, look like, mm -hmm. you know, what, what is it? How do you want to spend your days? What do you want to be doing? And um, because the worst thing is when you, when you, and I've seen this happen a lot of times, you have people join the industry and then they're just like, this is crazy, you know, this is too much work or people aren't, you know, like this, this is so antiquated. Who uses cell sheets? Why is there so much paper? I'm like, well, you know, I can't help you. It, there's just paper, although it may be different now. Um, you know, but, but really looking at that mm -hmm. because, um, you know, I think that can be a big barrier to entry for people or, or be a reason that they lack success. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think those probably what you're saying is that there are emergencies in the wine industry. I am industry. saying that my dad lied. Yes, there are definitely emergencies, unfortunately. That would have been great. That's <laughs> so all the questions that I have for Thanks. you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here today that we should have covered? I don't think so. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for your yep. time, for your thoughts and your candor, and uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.